This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. So I was fortunate enough to get invited up to GMO in Boston where I sat with Matt Kadner. Uh, he's a member of the Asset Allocation Committee and really uh, one of the people who is the right-hand man to Jeremy Grantham. He has such an unusual background and is so interesting. Uh, I don't know what's more fascinating. The fact that everybody knows GMO and very few people have heard of Matt Kadner or his really unique background. He comes out of a law firm background. And in fact, he was in-house counsel for LPL, which is a giant uh, brokerage firm, and ended up at, at one of the preeminent uh, shops, value shops in the world. Fascinating guy, mathy enough that I think you can rely on his analysis, but sort of right brain squishy enough that he can weave an interesting narrative discussion about how GMO sets about setting up their entire outlook and their asset allocation and portfolio management. It really is quite a, a fascinating conversation. He's tremendously insightful, and this is just one of those conversations that I don't think you're going to hear anywhere else. So with no further ado, my sit-down straight from GMO's offices in Boston, GMO's Matt Kadner. I am sitting in a conference room at GMO's office here in Boston overlooking Boston Harbor, and it is a spectacular view. And I am sitting with Matt Kadner, who is a member of GMO's asset allocation team, uh, where he focuses on research and portfolio management. He's been with GMO for almost 15 years. You joined in 2004. Before that, he was an investment specialist and consultant relations manager at Putnam Investments. And even more fascinating, he served as in-house counsel uh, for LPL Financial Services. We'll spend some time talking about that. That's a really interesting transition from legal to law to finance. Uh, you went to school here in Boston College, and you hail from uh, the Midwest. You have a JD from St. Louis University, and you are a CFA charter holder. Normally at this point, I say, Matt Kadner, welcome to Bloomberg, but instead I'm going to say thank you for having me here at GMO. Ah, it's a pleasure. So let's start with that initial fascinating background. You're in-house counsel for LPL Financial Services. You have a JD. You, you spent years as an associate at Mellican Porter. So, so you have, you've done pretty much the full legal uh, gig. What made you decide, hey, let's, let's shift to finance? Uh, it was pretty simple, Barry. I was just miserable. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> the... Uh, you know, I, I did litigation for my legal career, uh -huh. and so while I always enjoyed advocating for my clients, the adversarial process was pretty miserable. Right. And here in Boston, you know, a lot of the litigation was pretty brass-knuckled. Brass and so I just, uh, you know, I would take the train into work every day, and I would look, you know, watch the tea coming back out and just could not wait to be on that tea coming back the home. The other ride home. And so uh, my, my father-in-law, he wasn't my father-in-law at the time, but he... Uh, he has a lot of wisdom, and so he said he knew I was miserable, and he said, "Son, if if you enjoy what you're doing, you'll never work a day 
in your life. And so he actually gave me the, the, the book, What Color Is Your Parachute? Uh-huh. And, uh, and that did a nice job of matching up what I enjoyed doing which, with what I thought I was good at. And that was uh, finance and, and, and sales and communicating with people. And so I was lucky enough to kind of get an opportunity at Putnam where a couple guys, Alex Nelson and Kevin Sullivan, took, uh, took a chance. And so mm-hmm. I joined them in the fall of 2000, and I discovered that you could actually enjoy working. That, that's fascinating. I, if memory serves, I believe the data point is something like 50% of all law school grads seven years later are no longer practicing attorneys. I'm, I'm surprised it's that low. Oh, really? And, and by the way, I'm part of that 50%. I moved on from law 25 years ago and, and couldn't be more thrilled to have, like you, made the transition to finance. Yeah, I think the hardest part was getting my mom to understand that uh, there was a better way to make a living. I, I had the same issue with my wife. She's like, what What do you mean? I, I married a lawyer. Are you going to become a trader? What, what are you talking about? <laughs> this, a stable income is going away and you can replace it with something speculative and risky? That doesn't sound like a, a, a smart move. So <laughs> you're, at, you're at LPL. How do you do the transition? You go from LPL to Putnam. Um, what was your first gig? What were you doing there? So I was uh, in the D.C. Uh, investment-only group, so so basically working with institutional clients that had Putnam Investments on their D.C. platform. I did that for a couple years and then transitioned over into the consultant relations channel where I was covering uh, the West Coast DB consultants. And the travel was starting to wear a little bit. My wife was pregnant with twins, and, and I got an opportunity to come work at GMO in 04 and GMO, you know, had made its way through the bubble, acquitted itself very well. And very well. Very well. You're, you're understating it. Not, not only did GMO pretty much call the bubble in real time, but they were one of the few who turned around and said, hey, this is about as bad as it gets. Things look cheap. Feel free to start adding equity to your portfolios. Yeah, and they, they, the performance out of the bubble actually, you know, Jeremy will talk about, you know, generally we don't do well in bull markets, but uh, the performance, you know, into the bubble, through it, and out of it was really spectacular where there was a lot of cheap, low-quality assets, international small cap emerging that just did spectacularly cheap, well. Cheap, low-quality, as opposed to cheap, high-quality. Correct. High-quality doesn't get it quite as cheap as the low-quality does. Is that the thinking? Um, well, you know, there's a price for, there's a price for everything. Sure. And, and, and high-quality got pretty expensive kind of into 2000. Uh-huh. And as the va- you know, value tends to be lower in quality. And so, you know, the value in U.S. and outside the U.S., particularly international small value, particularly EM, uh, just got really left behind. And so as the market got, it, got its legs and rallied, that stuff was so cheap and just was, you know, just, just took off. Let, let, me, let me come back to what you just said because it's kind of a fascinating observation. Value tends to be low quality. How are you defining quality? In, in my mind, I know there are technical definitions and other definitions. Is it, and some of it involves um, the amount of debt, the the variable crazy things that sometimes happens that may not show up on a balance sheet, but constant turnover in the executive suite. How do you define value under those circumstances? So, um, so here value is, is basically the, the cheap half of the market, whereas quality is quantitatively low debt, high ROE, and stable ROE. Mm-hmm. And so value, because it tends to be in the more cyclical sectors, it has more financials, tends to be on average lower quality 
than growth. By those definitions. Correct. That, that makes a lot of sense. So you transition from law to finance. You start at GMO in 04. What's your day to day like? What do you What do you focus on? Well, back then, actually, I was uh, I joined as a client relationship manager, and so because GMO was growing, they needed more folks to deal sure. with clients, and so I spent a lot of time in those early days trying to better understand asset allocation because I felt it was my edge as a relationship manager that I could go in and talk to a client about our seven year forecast about how we think about the total portfolio, and I guess I spent so much time up talking to the asset allocation folks after several months they said hey you know you seem like you have a lot of interest in this stuff why don't you join the asset allocation team we need somebody out there as a portfolio portfolio strategist talking to clients you seem like a nice guy <laughs> why don't you uh, why don't you take the gig is that is that a fluid sort of um is that typical of gmo where people move within departments or was that a little bit of an unusual shift I think that was that was atypical for mm-hmm. somebody to go f- from the relationship side to the investment side. That's actually happened a couple times since then. GMO tends to be a pretty flat place, so that does produce a fair amount of fluidity uh, between roles. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that was just an opportunity to uh, kind of do something that I discovered that I really loved, that I thought was interesting, I thought would give me an edge, but I probably took it to the next level of trying to really understand it. So. So you go from effectively client-facing to portfolio managing. How did you educate yourself on what works for portfolios, what doesn't? Because there's a a fairly broad and rich literature about everything related to asset allocation and portfolio management, although some of it contradicts itself. How did you teach yourself what, what was the right way to do this? You know, I found that the way GMO approaches the world is different than a lot of other firms, a lot of other academic literature. So I basically asked my boss, Ben Anker, a million questions. Mm -hmm. And I spent uh, a lot of time with Jeremy and other members of the team listening, asking questions, trying to, you know, trying to understand uh, how we approach the world, why we did what we did, all in an effort to be able to educate clients what what, what, what we did. But I would say most of that education was internal uh, as well as, you know, there's, uh, you know, a handful of other kind of friends of the firm out there that, you know, we read Andrew Smithers uh, in the UK wrote mm-hmm. a lot of very good pieces that seemed to rhyme with what we were doing. So it was an education with a li- limited outside, but mostly trying to take the wealth of information that my colleagues had and digest it in a way that, that I could use. And, and when you were originally client-facing, GMO is... 100% or almost 100% institutional? Is that is that correct? Uh, it was almost uh, oh, not quite 100%. We, we, we had a, a, a small relationship with Evergreen at the time on the retail side. Mm-hmm. And today? Uh, we have uh, a relationship with Wells Fargo that, that grew into Wachovia, which grew right. in, into Wells Fargo. So the Wells Fargo Absolute Return Fund is still a, a big piece of our business. But you're, you're, you're traditionally known as an institutional Correct. shop. The vast majority is that a yes. of, And if memory serves, you guys are up to about $70 billion, That's something correct. along those, those numbers. So let, you mentioned the seven-year forecast. Let, let's talk about that a little bit because um, Jeremy Grantham has been doing these seven-year forecasts for as long as I've been in the industry. 1994. And... and uh, which is about when I started, and he 
has, over that long period of time, been fairly consistent. Nobody is 100% right, but he's been a whole lot more right than wrong over that, that period of time. Why seven years? What's the significance of seven years? Um, uh, and, and how did that come about? So uh, the forecasts originally when they started in 1994 were that they were a 10-year forecast. Mm-hmm. And so what we had heard from clients was, hey, we get that you're long-term, but 10 years just just too long. And so in uh, actually 1998, uh, Ben Inker, the current, my boss, the head asset allocation, he had done this study where he had found 28 bubbles going back to the South Sea bubble in the 18th century. And so at some point, he just did the math to see how long it took for those bubbles to rise and fall. And so it turns out uh, that the average of those was actually six and a half years. And so we converted to a seven-year forecast. Huh. My, I automatically assumed it was biblical and seven, <laughs> seven fat years. It's got a nice rhyme years, to it. <laughs> for sure. So, so that's interesting. So that raises, that raises a fascinating question. Back in February 2009, right before the market bottomed, uh, Jeremy comes out with a seven-year, or I should say GMO comes out with a seven-year forecast. And that forecast for U.S. large stocks was close to 9% a year going forward, which, if you remember back to February 2009, was kind of hard to imagine. A lot of people were hiding under their desks the thought of, hey, you're going to get 8.9% a year for the next seven years. Um, no one really believed it. It turned out, as bullish as that was at the bottom, it was fairly cautious. Over the next seven years, we saw over 12% returns. So the questions that come up from there is, um, are are you as bullish today as you were back then? Uh, What's the outlook going forward? And why do you think the market did as exceeded your bullish expectations from pretty much the nadir of the financial crisis. Yeah, that well, that last one is a that's a that's a that's a tough one. So I'm going to start with the easier question okay. first, um, and then come back. But you know, I think our our view today is certainly cautious. That you've been in this environment where you've had extraordinary equity returns, where you've gotten kind of 20 years worth of returns in a 10 you know nine or 10 year 10 year period and so we think that that you know, we believe in mean reversion there's going to be there's going to be a, a give back to that so i think we are cautious in our outlook in that there's just not much return left in markets because everything with duration stocks and bonds have done incredibly well i would contrast this with 2007 where the valuations were also poor but you had a wonderful three standard deviation housing bubble Right. staring you in the face. You had this market narrative of the great moderation that central bankers had figured out the rhymes and the rhythms of the capitalist cycle and that recessions were a thing of the past. You had just unbelievable stupidity in the credit markets, people levering things 15 times to make 200 basis points over LIBOR. And so we were very defensive. You know, I think Jeremy's term was that there was a bubble in risk assets and we were very defensive and we were very scared. In, in, in many ways, the valuation certainly of U.S. equities are actually worse today, but we are not as defensive as we were in 2007. We don't have an obvious bubble kind of staring us in the face. You have some signs of stupidity in the credit markets, but it's not as nearly as pervasive as it was. G- give us an example. I mean, I, everybody seems to go to the subprime auto market, but that seems to be not the foundation for the rest of the economy 
the way the subprime housing exactly. market was. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the, the return with the vengeance of Covlight lending. Mm-hmm. You know, I would have bet a lot of money and lost that, you know, Covlight lending would have been, a, you know, Done thing forever. Of, exactly. Uh, yeah, you and me both. I'm, I'm shocked that that. How, is that a substantial amount of capital at risk in that? Um, I mean, it's a reasonable amount of capital. And I think, you know, one of the things that is a source of worry is the rise of mutual funds and ETFs in high yield and the levered loan market. With mm-hmm. That market used to be dominated by insurance companies. Now it's dominated by mutual funds and ETFs, which have, you know, obviously the daily liquidity. And, you know, Stein and, and, and some others have had, you know, the quote that they're liquid claims on a liquid investments. And so I think that's a potential source of worry. Liquid claims on illiquid investments. That's never a good thing, is it? Uh, it's it's okay until it's not, and then mm-hmm. it tends to end tends to end pretty badly. Well, the last time we saw a bit of a run on some of the high yield products was two or three years ago when one of the funds effectively blew up. Is is that the concern going forward? There'll be some either some fund unable to to meet its obligations, and that sets off the next cascade. What what do you guys think is the the bigger concern looking out? Um, I think it's difficult to figure out like what that concern is. I think the the general concern is there's been a huge reach for yield, and people are of the belief that these mutual funds and ETFs that you can you can get daily liquidity on these things, and you can. It's just that the prices underneath them aren't going to reflect that. You, and so as everybody starts going for the door, it, it might result in some 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 results that that you hadn't quite anticipated. You, you can either get price or liquidity, but not necessarily it, both at the same time. Exactly, exactly. So, so that, that's kind of interesting. Um, one of the things that GMO has talked about is benchmark-free investing. Uh, clearly, any of the high-yield or, or lower-quality um, illiquid stuff is, is not going to have a real benchmark. But if we're talking equities, what is the significance of the phrase benchmark-free investing? Well, benchmark-free investing kind of really came out in uh, the run-up in, in the bubble. And, you know, our flagship strategy that has been around since 1988 with Princeton and Phillips Exeter was our, our balanced strategy. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, 65 equity, 35 bonds. And so we we had two groups of clients, one of whom was firing us and another group was saying, hey, you know, Jeremy and Ben, you know, why do you have so much U.S. equities? It's the most expensive that it's ever it's ever been. And is this in 1988? Or, or 19, this... 1998, 1999. Uh-huh. And so, and the reason was, well, we have error. We have a benchmark that we're supposed to beat, and we have tracking error constraints that, that run into it. And so they took that feedback, went back to the lab, and they came up with what they called the where-to-hide portfolio. And they actually... I remember that phrase very distinctly. In the late 90s. And, and, and it was a, uh, a very interesting portfolio, and they actually uh, unveiled it at our fall conference in 1999. Mm-hmm. And, and GMO grew up investing, in a lot of endow- uh, investing for a lot of endowments and foundations, so the concept of five real was, you know, we've kind of been part of who we are for a long time. And so they said if you, the, the best way to make five real. Five real. Five percent over inflation mm-hmm. is to... Uh, own a portfolio that is basically 75% bonds, a little bit of REITs, and a little bit of emerging equities. And I wasn't at GMO at the time, but I can imagine kind of the crickets in the audience for sure. a- after they unveiled this in the middle of the dot-com 
bubble. So this is 1999. The previous year, the S&P was up 30%. NASDAQ was up 40-something percent that year. For, I'm doing it off the yep. top of my head. So, And you're telling people, no, no, no U.S. equity, mostly bonds. Here we are at the time, 20 years into a bond bull market, and people were already saying it was old and, and it was long in the tooth, and a little bit of EM and a little bit of REITs. It was a portfolio that was so far out of central casting for any institution that it went over basically basically like a Led Zeppelin. Nobody could take that portfolio back to their investment committee and say, this is the best way to compound wealth going forward. And so it wasn't until 2001 when the market started to fall apart, you were in the middle of the bear market, that we got somebody to say, hey, just maybe this thing isn't as half-baked right. as, it, as, it, as it originally right. seemed. And, you know, benchmarks are necessary for measurement uh, for institutions, for individuals. But what is very difficult for us about benchmark-oriented investing is that it forces you to own more of the things that you don't like and less of the things that you really do like. Right. And if your goal is to compound wealth, that's a pretty big inhibitor sure. to that because the ability to get out of the way of the oncoming freight train the ability to load up on an asset when it's really cheap. That's really how you compound wealth through time. And so that benchmark-free investing, which was originally the where-to-hide portfolio, you know, really has been part of our DNA since 1999. It wasn't until 2001 that somebody gave, you know, had the gumption to give us some money to invest that and, way. And how has that portfolio done since, and, and how much assets has it attracted? Um, it, it's done very well versus stocks and bonds or any combination of over that very long period that mm-hmm. it's compounded, um, I don't know off the top of my head, but much higher than stocks over that time period with really? half the volatility. It's got a sharp ratio of over one. Well, sure, from 2000 to 2000 and call it 2012, U.S. equities are effectively flat with a ton of volatility in between, and bonds just kept getting better and better and better over that time. So now looking at real plus five from here with what a number of high-profile bond people, be it Bill Gross or Jeff Gonlock, have pretty much declared the bond bull market over, What what's your outlook on bonds from here? Does GMO see the bond market and that bond bull run that dates back to Fed Chair Paul Volcker, is that still have any life left to it? Or is Gross and Gunlock correct? The best years of the bond bull market are behind us. Over the intermediate to long term, I think it's hard to see how bonds could deliver anything associated with the longer term returns that we've seen in this bull market. Obviously, the yield is what the yield is. Right. You've had duration the benefits of duration and falling yields over that time period. So, you know, our best guess is going forwards that bonds are going to be very disappointing, certainly relative to the last last 30 or so years. We, uh, we do like tips. We think that tips offer an interesting uh, inflation hedge relative to nominal bonds. Um, so, you know, as we think about benchmark-free, we have very little in the way of nominal duration. Most of our duration at this point is, is in real duration through, through tips. Mm-hmm. In a benchmark-oriented portfolio, uh, it's, about, it's about half and half. But uh, he- Half tips, half? No- nominals. Okay. So tips for, for um, where we are today is going to be a measure of inflation, um, that gets adjusted, I think it's twice a year, based on CPI data, yeah. something along those lines. So does this imply you're expecting higher inflation? 
going forward? I think that's the worry. The, the, the thing that will cripple anyone's portfolio is a rise in the discount rate. So the dis- that would impact every, any, anything with duration, both stocks and, and bonds. Uh, actually, it impacts stocks the most because they have the higher, the higher duration. But I think that's the concern. And if you weigh the risks one versus the other, I think over the longer term, the concern is that inflation is a higher risk than, um, than deflation at this point. So what does that tell us about forward expectations for U.S. equities? I'm not quite sure what that specifically tells you about the how the interest rates impact the expected return for U.S. equities. I think as we look at U.S. equities, they're just expensive on every metric that we can come up with, even the kindest and gentlest metrics. So, um, you know, I think what has happened to us as well as all investors is basically the Fed has bullied us into owning more <laughs> risk assets than we would than we would normally, given how poor cash yields and bond yields have been. So I've heard that phrase before: the Fed has bullied us into riskier assets. But that was through quantitative easing, where they're buying up a lot of paper, and through essentially zero interest rate. Now that QE is pretty much over, and their uh, whatever is on their balance sheet is apparently being allowed to run off naturally. They're, it's not that they're selling anything, but things hit maturity and they don't seem to go out and replace it. So the conditions that led to the bullying into risk assets are now going away. The expectation is three more increases this year, but even if it's one or two, we had a few increases last year, it seems that everybody on the Fed is lined up with ongoing normalization of interest rates. Does that mean risk assets become that much less attractive for a considerable period of time? Well, it's hard to envision quantitative tightening being bullish for assets. Right. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what it really means because the market can take on different narratives in the interim if the economy, economic growth is stronger. Um, you know, the market can kind of twist its, you know, tw- we can ju- twist the justification almost any way that we want. What I, th- I think is interesting is if we do get, you know, the continued hike in rates over the next several years, I think the fascinating question is to be, what, is, is what point were those rates tip the economy over into recession? That's an interesting question. If, you know, if it's, you know, two and a quarter on Fed funds, that's a pretty good indication that secular stagnation, you know, things are very different this time. If it's at three and a half on Fed funds or three or three and a half on Fed funds, that's a pretty good indication that secular stagnation, that things aren't different this time, that secular stagnation uh, might not be the argument that's winning, that's winning the day. There's a lot of variables in there. And the way I'm hearing you contextualize this is the Fed rate whatever it happens to be when the economy is then tipped into recession is going to be informative as to the broader macro cycle as to whether or not, hey, was that new normal behind us? Are we still in a stag, uh, a slow growth, I don't want to say stagflation, but a, uh, a low wage, low growth period of, of time? or is it possible that what ticks us into tips us into recession has nothing whatsoever to do with the Fed? 
I, I think it'll be a pretty good indication of, you know, it's not, it won't be dispositive, but it'll be a pretty good signal or pretty good signpost as to where, where, what regime we're in. You know, when we think about our forecasts, our traditional forecasts assume normal mean reversion, normal mean reversion to cash rates, uh, a term premium on top of that, mm-hmm. and then equity risk premium on top of that. You know, Ben uh, Inker has written several quarterly letters about this alternative universe that, that we've coined hell, which is basically uh, zero real in ca- for cash rates. And right. then you get uh, your bond premium on that and your equity risk premium on top of that. But if you're getting zero real for cash instead of one and a quarter real, which is our normal traditional right. assumption, your expected return for bonds and stocks falls similarly, uh, lower. Falls similarly lower. And it has, in the short run, it actually has the impact of uh, you're, you're assuming less mean reversion. So you're actually, your forecasts actually improve equities two to three points, bonds about a point. We call it hell because over the long term, if you're not getting five and a half or six real out of equities, if you're getting four or four and a half real out of equities, and you're getting two real out of bonds, not three, it really blows up everybody's asset allocation. Your ability to generate five real in that environment is really is really hampered. And so the hard part with predicting what environment you're in, hell versus purgatory, is, right. you know, we don't have, you know, we have people working on a model that will predict what, what Powell's going to do or Powell's successor is going to do. We really don't have somebody working on that because that's, that's a, a useless piece of right. uh, activity. You can't forecast that. And so, but we do have to weigh those probabilities and we're thinking about expected returns for our portfolios. And, you know, we are kind of card-carrying members of Mean Reversion. We are the, kind of the founding members of, of the Mean Reversion Society. And for us to recognize that there's a chance that things are different this time mm-hmm. uh, is, is very different, is, is certainly very different for us. That is, that is uncharted territory. It, it, certainly as far as asset allocation is concerned. So, so you keep talking about five real. I, I'm used to the institutional side focused on five because if you're an endowment or a foundation, you have to disperse 5% to maintain your tax-exempt status. What is the significance of five real? What, why has that number become such a focus? Um, I mean, that's just historically the spending rate for most for most institutions. Five percent real. Yeah. So so you know. So that's the coming from from the actual behavior of clients as opposed to some abstract theoretical. Correct. So if you you know if, if you are, are an educational institution, your your endowment oftentimes is contributing you know five percent of that endowment into the uh, into the budget for the school. You think about it in real terms because you want to maintain the purchasing power of that environment over time. And and we're sitting here in Boston. We're stone's throw from two fairly famous institutions, both of which have enormous um, endowments. When when you guys are reading about changing of the guard at the Harvard endowment or or some personnel change in MIT. What is the thought process like? Do, do and I know I'm kind of um, pulling this up out of left field, but you 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 mentioned educational institutions because I've been following that saga now for it seems like going back to Larry Summers, 15 years ago. Is it longer? Is it 20 years ago? And I'm always astonished. Wait, aren't they supposed to be really smart at Harvard? Why, why is this? Why did they kick out people who were doing so well? That original endowment team was just crushing it, 
and it seems like there's a different flavor each year, and nobody really seems to last. Obviously, I don't expect you to tell us what's going on on the inside, but do things like that cross your your um, uh, viewpoint? Do you look at that and say, what what's going on here? I mean, I think we read about it just because they're important parts of our industry. Mm-hmm. But, you know, our, our focus is not on kind of what the internal politics or what Harvard is doing. Our focus is more on, hey, how do we generate returns for, for our clients? So it's interesting to read, but it's not really, it's not really germane at the end of the day. So let me ask not about something that you read, but something that you wrote. Last summer, you co-authored a paper with James Montier. Um, and I loved both the title and, and some of the quotes from it. Uh, the title was the S&P 500, Just Say No. And within that, you have this delightful quote, please do not mistake us for members of that species known as perma bears. We don't always hate U.S. equities as a matter of principle. We are just governed by the precepts of valuation. So let's leap off, use that as a leaping off point and discuss valuation how do you guys measure valuation of equities? And it's obvious, but I have to ask the question, why do you believe valuation is so important? Yeah, so, um, you know, we think that valuation is going to determine the vast bulk of, of your outcomes, mm-hmm. that no asset, uh, no assets preordained to make you money unless it's priced to do so. So our investment process, if you wanted to sum it up into 11 words is figure out what you th- think something's worth and where you where you can be wrong. And so valuation for us is the thing that we have the highest degree of confidence in. And, you know, trying to predict the rhymes and rhythms of, you know, the S&P, it's a 23 uh, trillion dollar market. It's it's complex, it's reflexive, it's got stochastic as the quants call, you know, random elements tossed in that. Trying to predict that in the short run is, is simply impossible to do consistently. But we know, and we can test this back to the Chester A. Arthur administration, that valuation really is going to do, um, your starting valuation, the price you pay for an asset, is really going to, to really determine the vast bulk of your outcomes. It's not a guarantee, mm-hmm. but uh, there's... It's know, a good statistical bet. Exactly, exactly. Every now and then, Jeremy says something that within the the framework of a valuation uh, of a value investor um, brings in a little bit of behavioral finance i'm always curious how clients respond to that so the most recent seven-year forecast was pretty um i don't want to say bearish but it was pretty subdued is that a fair <laughs> fair assessment i think you're being kind <laughs> but at the same time he very publicly said uh, I don't think we're up to the melt-up stage yet, meaning the bull market still has ways to go, and that last stage, things can really get out of hand. How do you reconcile our seven-year forecast is negative, but there's some crazy stuff coming before that? Yeah, I, I think, you know, certainly as we talk to clients, the clients are pretty, we're pretty clear with them, you know, the process they bought was based on our long-term valuation forecast. That's the process that is going to be the primary input in terms of putting together their portfolio. I think Jeremy wove a very interesting mosaic with respect to, hey, the pieces might be in place for this thing to really blow off and melt up. Mm. Um, he put, a, I think he put a probability of you know, 50% probability on it. So he wasn't saying it was 
it was a sure thing by any stretch. And I think it was an interesting, it is an interesting speculation, but our job is to not speculate, obviously, with clients' money. It's right. to follow the process that we've been doing for almost 30 years with an asset allocation. We do, from time to time, have shorter-term views on the markets, but they are few and far between. It's a high bar to implement those views. Right. You know, we, we got more defensive in 08 because we were more scared about what was going on. That was a shorter-term view. But, but Jeremy's kind of one in two chance of things melting up, you know, we get less questions about it now after, you know, the market fell 11% right. than we did at the end of January when the market was, market was taking off. But right. I think- and, you, and just following the, the tax reform, everything seemed to just explode upwards. Um, did anyone say, hey, is this the melt up? Where, where, where are we with this? Uh, it felt it certainly felt like in in January th- things were trending in that direction. Um, I think there is room for that narrative to come back into the market, but I think February really uh, was a shakeup for some investors. Um, well, now that's a really valid and interesting point. We've had during this run much more significant pullbacks than what we saw in February. And this is a little squishy and qualitative of me, not quantitative, but it felt that that 11% drawdown had a far greater resonance amongst many more people than the previous. There were a couple of 19 and 20% pullbacks. February really seemed to scare the bejesus out of a lot of people. <laughs> what, so the question is, why? why? What made this pullback so significant? I, I think it was if you when you just had such an extended period where nothing had happened to the markets, and so when you know when that gets jostled in a pretty violent way, right? And uh, I think that just reawoken the fact to investors like, oh, hey, this thing is not a one-way train. That <laughs> right. that, that bad things Wait, can happen. Wait, stocks go down too? Yeah. Is that what you say? Yeah, and also, you know, you didn't get as much help from bonds in this particular right. run either. So, so you know, investors' portfolios were a bit more exposed. Now the markets kind of come back, not all the way. Bonds, bond yields have stayed have stayed high, mm-hmm. but I think it was uh, a nice reminder that, hey, you know, bad things can happen out there. So when you look at valuation, how do you construct a measure of valuation? Surely it's more than just price-to-earnings ratio. Yeah, so our, our, for, our seven-year forecast, the framework is pretty simple. You have valuation and you have growth and in income. On the, on the valuation side, you have PEs and you have margins, or I think it's probably more technically, we have proxies for return on capital. So, uh, so we know that uh, what really mean reverts for equities is returns on capital. And so we'll look at that. We'll cut that several different ways in building our forecast. And we'll combine that with PE to get a sense of the valuation. We'll also combine that with growth. You get that as an equity investor. You get income as an equity investor. And that provides a fairly simple framework for thinking about what you think something is worth. Mm-hmm. And then you ask the risk management question of where, where, you, might be, where you might be wrong. So you're, are you looking at, at valuation across all assets, or is it strictly equity? How do you evaluate bonds? How do you evaluate other non-equity assets or non-bond assets? So we, we value uh, a whole host. I think there are 40 or 50 different equity markets. We'll do a similar exercise with respect to bonds. The issue, with, however, with bonds is that the evidence for mean reversion is not 
right. to be kind nearly as strong as it is with inequities. You have the central bankers who can kind of muck around with the front end of the curve or the long end of the curve, depending upon the particular market. So the the, the case for mean reversion within bonds is 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 less strong, and so that leads us to you know, having a mean reverting model, having a model that doesn't mean revert, having a um, kind of adopting a Leibowitz type framework with constant duration uh, in real terms. So you, you, it's a little bit more of a mosaic with respect to bonds. Currencies, we also, you know, we value as well. It's, it's primarily purchasing power parity. We make some adjustments for it. So it just becomes relative to other major exactly. finance centers. Yep, yep. So it's US, Japan, Europe, or are you looking at a broader range of currencies? Um, it, you know, it's all the developed currencies and 25 or 30 different emerging currencies. Mm-hmm. Maybe tw- probably 20 or 25 different emerging currencies. And and EM currencies can give help contribute to a read of is the dollar fairly valued? Is it weak? Is it strong? Yeah, I think you know the interesting thing about emerging currencies is that they, you know, they can be valued in and of themselves. Uh, you have the mean reversion of the currency, which you get get as part of an as being an equity owner. You get the real you don't get the real rate aspect of things. Um, but for for us, as we think about emerging historically, the times where emerging has really got into a lot of trouble has been when the currencies have been overvalued. So kind of heading into the Asian crisis, sure. 13 or 14, we thought that the EM currencies were very expensive. So, so that almost becomes, in addition to an expected return tool, it almost becomes a risk management tool as well. And so EM currencies have ripped. They've had a, you know, a great run over the past you know, probably two years now. Mm-hmm. But they're at the point where they're basically fairly valued. They're, you know, it's, you know, it's not... You know, they're certainly not expensive enough to, to really cause you to, to lose, lose sleep at night, and they certainly have room to run. When you're dealing with purchasing power parity with EM, you always have to take it with a grain of salt because the data is not so great. But you know, when you're really looking at currencies, you're looking at extremes. That that's when that really matters. Do commodities come under the same process, or are they really so dollar-dependent? That you don't look at it the same way. Well, they're they're different for 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 different reasons. Commodities, we do look at oil, iron ore, uh, a copper, iron ore, oil, and natural gas. Mm-hmm. Um, copper, iron ore. So there's your industrial side. Um, natural gas, and what was the last oil. one? And oh, and oil. So that's your heating and your transportation. Yeah. The the problem the the the. Um, the confidence in those forecasts is less. Understanding the supply and demand dynamics sure. in those markets is, is very difficult. We had, we did have strong views on copper and iron ore in 2011 and 2012. We had a fairly exhaustive view of the supply side, and we just felt like demand couldn't be strong enough to match the prices and the supply coming on. So, mm-hmm. but but the confidence in those forecasts gen, generally tends to be lower. And I didn't hear you mention precious metals or gold in. in which has its own set of uh, issues. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I asked Jim Grant once how he valued gold, and, and, and he basically said it was the, the, the value manager's indulgence. So, he, so he, <laughs> he, 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 even he could not uh, put, put a price on it. You know, for years, uh, Jeremy said, I'll own gold when it yields the same thing as a T-bill. And so uh, there, in 08, it actually yielded. Came close, didn't it, it actually yielded more than more than a T bill for a period of time. And so we did own some gold in our mean reversion hedge fund for a period, 
And then we actually made a, a good bit of money on it, and, and we tried to value it, and, and we just couldn't, and we got scared, and we just took our profits and ran. Uh, totally understandable. That That's a lot of value investors' view on um, on gold. So so a, as some of the founding members of the uh, the Mean Reversion Club, let, let's talk about those corporate profits that, that you referenced. Why haven't we seen corporate profits mean revert they seem not just at record levels, but significantly elevated over past cycles. Can we credit or blame the Fed for this, or is something else going on? Yeah, that's a. Um, I mean, that's a really hard question. It's a question that we puzzled over for you know literally years and years. Actually, before the financial crisis, when profit margins were high, we spent a lot of time thinking about why those profit margins are. Jeremy has put together, again, a, a pretty interesting mosaic as to why profit margins are high, mm-hmm. that you have uh, uh, um, decreasing competition within industry uh, that leads to higher profits. You have greater, after Citizens United, you have greater corporate influence in Washington, making it harder for new companies to come in. Um, and so, so there's, I think there's qualitative reasons that we can come up with as to why profit margins are higher. We've tried to quantify those, and we've been less successful in, uh, in, in, in being able to, to put data to that. Um, I think it's something that we struggle to answer. We do, as we think about our valuation models, we do build in higher profitability assumptions for the U.S. Mm-hmm. But I also think it comes back to an observation, you know, that we made years ago, actually Jeremy, Jeremy made years ago, that the real median wage in the United States hasn't moved in 45 years. And so the... Meaning af- real after inflation wages have been flat for half a century. Half a century. Since the early 60s. And so, um, and, and I think, so all of the, the you know, the benefits have accrued, have accrued to capital rather than labor, and that's allowed profit margins to be, to be higher. Uh, and I think that does pre- present some pretty difficult issues for the, for the economy in the long run. So I completely agree with that assessment. But I want to push back on a little bit because I've heard some interesting counter arguments elsewhere, um, and they go something like this: On a uh, formation side for a company, it's never been cheaper, easier to get a laptop and an internet connection, and suddenly you're in business. As a, even during the dot coms, you needed ten or twenty million dollars to build the back end infrastructure that literally. A laptop uh, provides today, and a handful of of off-the-shelf uh, web uh, products, and that a lot of the new companies, um, be they Google or Facebook or um, some of the other firms that uh, are more digital than physical, you don't need giant factories, you don't need tremendous amounts of capital, you don't need huge pools of labor. You could be incredibly efficient, incredibly effective, and so of course Google should have a higher P ratio than Ford. Um, uh, the same with Facebook. Shouldn't Facebook be worth more than U.S. Steel? Shouldn't we value? Shouldn't the return on investment be much higher for that? Maybe Amazon is a little different because they have so much physical facilities, and Apple is its own sort of unique creature. Are we seeing more and more of the, if not Google, but digital or low-cost, low-capital, low-personnel companies, and therefore 
they should be more profitable and, and are entitled to a higher PE? Or is that just an excuse for an overvalued market? <laughs> well, I think what you're saying is true. Uh, the the issue that we have with that is it is true for the technology sector. It is not true for the system as a whole. Right. And so as we value profits for the system as a whole, uh, that is what is elevated. Tech is a part of it, but it's also true outside outside of tech as well. So, uh, aren't so I I'm using my firm as an example, and I assume GMO has uh, the same experience. The things you can do with again a laptop and some software. Um, doesn't require as, as much manpower as necessary. If we were to go back in time and I was going to say, hey, you're going to manage $70 billion, communicate with clients all over the world, and run a dozen different strategies across various hedge funds, mutual funds, SMAs down the list, you'd say, oh, well, that's a 3,000-person entity. And today, it's it's a tiny fraction of it. So even out of outside of the, the Googles and the techno, technology companies, aren't we all that much more effective and efficient thanks to technology? Or again, is that just excuse-making? Um, you know, it's just as you were, you know, giving that hypothetical, I just started thinking about how many more people that we have in compliance and how complex our business has become sure. and the demands of clients are greater and how you deal with the data you know th those issues are you know so much data has been created in the last 2 years like how do you deal with that data so you need people for that right. so i think I, th I think our world in general is becoming more complex and that is requiring additional resources in order to uh, in order to combat that. You know, I think we have to work harder on the investment side. I think you need more people. You think you need more smarter people in order in order to do that as well. You can run multiple por portfolios and you can do it more easily, but that doesn't mean you do it as well. Mm -hmm. So one of the things you mentioned was when you're putting together a, a forecast, the risk management side is how and where might this be off and how can we anticipate and adjust for that. So when you look at this changing dynamic in, in earnings uh, and corporate profits, how would you think you might be off? How might it be different this time? Usually the most expensive four words you can say. But there's no doubt the world is changing and, and technology and business is changing. What might that mean to future profit models? You know, the world has always changed. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you think about 100 years ago, how the economy has evolved over that, over that time period, it's really been unbelievable. And, and I think we would say that the normal required return to stocks has fallen through time because there's less volatility in the economy. There's less volatility in inflation. You have things like the SEC. You can debate whether the Fed's actually helpful or hurtful, but there's more institutional controls in the economy. And so that we do think that the required return to stocks has come down because they are inherently less risky than they were. Less friction as well. To yeah. even execute something or or just go buy something is cheaper, faster, easier. Exactly. So so it justifies a higher multiple. Now the, the real question is are what how yeah, much higher? how much higher? <laughs> and so if you think a twenty five multiple is a normal return for stocks, well, then your long-term expectations are, are pretty small. Uh, your earnings yield is four. There's some slippage in there between the earnings yield and what you receive. I don't know that many investors really think stocks are there to determine, you know, are there, there to generate three reels. So, so, you know, for us, what was always 
there's the risk parity folks out there. We've always had a greater confidence in the equity risk premium, and we would rather have more of our portfolios uh, associated with the equity risk premium because equities are inconvenient assets. So they go down at the time sure. that you just you don't want them to as recession, as people lose jobs, as that, as that hits. And so there should be a required rate of return there. And so you can debate you know, whether that is six or five or four, but when you look at the market today, and you know whether you value it based on historical assumptions or if you kind of evaluate it in new normal assumptions you know the u.s market just is so expensive no matter which way we slice it that it's just hard to justify these multiples so what part of the world from an equity perspective is not expensive we we look at japan we look at europe we look at em what do you think are the most attractive um, regions uh, where the valuation is not as stretched as it is here. Yeah, EM is really the, the only game in town, and specifically EM value. Mm-hmm. So the, you know, the, the, the value side of EM is the exact opposite of the Tencent and the Baidu and the Alibaba. <laughs> it is, uh, you know, it is Taiwanese semiconductors, it's Russian energy stocks, it's Brazilian utilities, Turkish financials, it's a fairly Korean kaiballs, it's a fairly motley, motley group of stocks. But those value stocks are priced to deliver uh, a, a significantly higher return re- that versus the rest of, of the market. And we think about this, and we call this the margin of superiority, mm-hmm. that how, how cheap is the cheapest asset class versus the next cheap at cheapest asset class. And and normally you have two or three things that are within spitting distance of each other. But today EM value is is so by so far the most dominant in terms of its forecast that we've actually all you know altered our portfolio construction to take a bigger bet on it because there are so few other opportunities out there. Really that that's quite fascinating. So I don't disagree that the US is pricey but when we look around the rest, when I look around the rest of the world, Japan doesn't look that horrific, especially if you can hedge the currency. And Europe isn't the craziest it's been. It's, it's, it's had a nice move off the lows. How do you see what's in between the U.S. and, and EM? Yeah, EFA value, so kind of taking what you just said and just broadening it to EFA value, mm-hmm. uh, is, the next, is really the next cheapest asset class outside of EM. It is... Uh, certainly relative to the U.S., EFA is, I think it's in the top decile of attractiveness of oh, EFA really? versus so the U.S. So this is Europe, Australia, Far East on a value basis. Right. Sorry, on, on just, just S&P versus MSCI mm-hmm. EFA, um, and then you get some premium for owning value on top of it. So, so we still have 11% of the portfolio in EFA value. Now, it's not cheap in absolute terms. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we think it's, it's worthy of having some space in an equity portfolio. Uh, it's hard to get, you know, stand on the table, pound, you know, pound your fist bullish on it. But mm-hmm. we think that certainly relative to the U.S., you could get very bullish on it. In absolute terms, it's a little bit harder to get, get excited about it. But we think it's still worth a portion of your portfolio in, in benchmark free. So priority, it, it's EM at the top, EFA in the middle, and... and S&P little, far below. Far, far below. Um, so when we come back to this extended valuation, what do we blame or credit that, that price? It, do, it, are, we, are we overemphasizing the role of the Fed? Is it other factors? 
Well, it's always fun to bash the Fed, at least right. at least in these in these halls. Right. Um, you know, I give them full credit for their transparency. You know, Bernanke went into the Washington Post and wrote wrote an op-ed saying, "Hey, we're trying to gin up the prices of, of these things." So, but by uh, the way, anybody who didn't read that and go out and buy equities really should not be managing money. <laughs> it's like when the Fed chief says, "We want equity prices higher," you have to pay attention to that. I did. What was that like the morning after that came out in these halls? Were were people aghast and astonished that a Fed chief actually said, "Hey, strap yourself in. We're taking this higher." It, it's it was extraordinary, and you know I think we have an inherent skepticism for central bankers and their ability to influence the economy and markets. Uh, but I think you know we did not grasp that as quickly as some others did. You know, it took us a while for us to really internalize that and think about it within our framework, and that really was the genesis for kind of creating these hell forecasts, which take into account the fact that financial repression can go on long enough that can really start to impact, you know, impact the cash flows and then the fair value, the fair value for equities. But it's. You know, it, the, the, the Fed seems to continue to play a dangerous game. Who knows what Powell will do? Maybe he's more hawkish. Maybe he's got more of a business background versus the academics that have preceded him. Um, but it seems like, you know, the mean reversion of profit margins, stocks trading at higher multiples than normal, kind of started with Greenspan, continued with Bernanke, right. Yellen, you know. So if interest rates keep going higher, if, if they normalize, if the Fed successfully gets us to, I don't know, pick your poison, three and three quarters, four and a half, whatever they consider normal, what should that do to, to valuation? I mean, stocks should be vulnerable under that scenario. We've certainly read and heard so much uh, from the sell side over the past you know, five, seven, nine years, lower rates require higher multiples. So it'll be interesting to see how they walk that back. They're always pretty good at giving a pretty elegant explanation as to why it's different. Right. But, it, but it certainly seems like that would be a pretty key underpinning as to why you should justify paying, you know, multiples similar to these. Um, I think the, you know, as we were talking about before, the real concern is is what happens with inflation and that is the one thing that could really croak, um, you know, all portfolios. Uh, and I think that's just that's the that's just the longer term worry. So I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on the concept of financial repression for a moment. Over this period of financial repression, one valuation has been median price to sales, and and this has been not just elevated but record highs for five or six years. What do you make of that as a value investor? Yeah, price to sales is an interesting one because there's not a, we can't think of a, a theoretical reasons why price to sales should mean revert. We think. Really? Yeah, it, it has historically. Uh-huh. Uh, it's actually been nicely mean reverting historically. But, but you don't you don't assume that's a requirement. No, it's 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 re, it's your return on capital that should that should mean revert through uh-huh. through time. So, uh, so we're not quite sure what to make of it. Um, we used to run our models exclusively on price to sales because it was nicely comparable across regions and across right, time. Right. And so, you don't have all the different gap accounting rules and 
it, it, a lot of things change on some of the other metrics. And, and if we were to continue just following a price-to-sales methodology, I think our forecasts are minus 8 or minus 9 real for the S&P 500. So we've diversified that into other what we think are reasonable proxies, and that has, um, you know, those are expensive, but just not nearly as expensive as, as price-to-sales. So what do you end up as the forecast if you're using other valuation metrics? As we kind of hot off the press, the forecast for U.S. large, assuming normal mean reversion is minus 4.9 real a year for seven years. A year, wow. So, I mean, that, that's definitely not built into anybody's asset allocation models. If we, you know, we talked about that hell scenario earlier, the, mm-hmm. that forecast is minus two real. So it's better, but it's still a far cry from five or six. So if you end up with a big uptick in inflation, you could end up with flat markets over seven years and essentially zero return. That that's the, that's a not a forecast, but a significant probability. I think if you had a significant uptick in inflation, it would really do a number on PE. So Jeremy and Ben have this something they call this comfort model, which is an explanatory model for current PEs, and it looks at. Uh, the volatility of inflation, the volatility of GDP, and the level of profit margins. And so if you do get higher inflation, uh, I think that has an impact on profit margins, or at least Buffett thought in the 70s inflation had a big impact on profit margins. Um, That that model would be perturbed, and you would get uh, a, a much lower, a much lower multiple. And we saw in the 70s, certainly, that inflation really was scary for equity and bond investors. But I think inflation, definitely, your, your multiple comes down. So let's talk a little bit about um, investing in general. This is a topic that everybody is interested in. Um, one of the things that you, this office, that GMO has to uh, be on guard against is the, what some people have called the danger of success. Obviously, the firm has been tremendously successful um, over a multi-decade period. How does this affect the psychology here? How does it affect your outlook? Does it make you more cautious because you're protecting gains? Or is can the firm still be a risk taker and an innovator despite all the success? Well, I, I feel like the market does a, a wonderful job of humbling you. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Very, very quickly. And, you know, Jeremy has an expression that you always qu- cry over spilt milk. And so I think part of our process is to ask questions as to, you know, what we did, why we did what we did, what we didn't do, and why we did that, and whether that's right. So I think that process of self introspection is very important. I think having James Montier around, who's, you know, an expert in behavioral aspects, mm-hmm. is, uh, is, is, is very helpful. Um, and, you know, the game is hard. And so, you know, figuring out whether you're in a bubble or not, you know, we have technical quantitative definitions, but it's much more nuanced than that. So there was a lot of success calling both the dot-com bubble and the housing bubble. Do you run a risk of, hey, we've, we've really built a reputation as spawning these bubbles? Do you start to see bubbles everywhere? Is that a, a genuine concern? Um, I think... I think that's a you know there's a concern for any investor as to their process and what they're doing and whether things are different this time. And certainly, if you believe on mean reversion, things being different this time is is really the critical the critical question. So we spend 
an inordinate amount of time in what we would refer to as risk management as you know where these forecasts can be wrong mm -hmm. and how are things different this time and it's you know there it's nuanced unfortunately there's not you know we can't quantify you know all of these things there it's, it tends to be more art than science although we do want to reduce things to numbers um, but I, I also think having you know, people who've been around the block like Jeremy and Ben is very helpful because, you know, they've seen multiple cycles. So a lot of people like to make the claim they're contrarians. GMO has very much been a contrarian over the years. Uh, and that sometimes means being a little early. I don't want to use the word wrong, but it sometimes means, hey, uh, this market is stretched. How does it affect interacting with clients? How does it affect forecasts? Do you start to recognize we're always early, we're going to be a little early now, and we just have to ride it out until um, time proves us right or not? We, we certainly don't frequently refer to ourselves as contrarian. What we re refer to ourselves are value, uh, value investors. And it feels like people are tripping them over themselves to call themselves contrarian these days. So you know, kind of the natural response is you need to be a trend follower in order to be, in, in order to be contrarian, it feels like. Um, you know, I think, all, you know, we try and design a process that we recognize that we tend to be early. We build some things into the process to try and help ameliorate that. But it is what we do. It is kind of the curse of a value investor. There's nothing worse than thinking something's cheap and not owning it and having it go up. <laughs> so, so... You know, we try and be as transparent as we can with clients as to what we're doing and why we're doing it so that they can kind of get to the finish line, so that they can get to the finish line with us. When seven-year real returns are expected to be negative for U.S. large cap stocks and negative for U.S. equities across the board, how do you discuss that with clients? Are they comfortable with the expectation? Don't look to the U.S. equity side of things for any real returns going forward? I think our mantra with clients has been own as little U.S. equities as your committee or your career will allow. <laughs> uh, that, 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 you know, they've just beaten the rest of the world by 100 points. They've beaten, you know, they've beaten EM by 150 points. And you can look historically and see these cycles where right. U.S. performs and then IFA outperforms. And, and we've just been through the period where we've had the greatest outperformance of the U.S. stocks relative to the rest of the world. In history, that, right? that, Well, that we've seen since, since the 70s where you kind of have legitimate, legitimate data. And so we got a lot of questions from clients in 16, the beginning of 16, saying, hey, this diversification sounds like you know, sounds good in principle, but I generally prefer more, more money to less. Like, what are we doing here? We're really not seeing the benefits of that. Now, there's less questions about that over the preceding two years, as IFA and EM have done, have done much better. But, um, you know, as we think about, you know, Benchmark Free, for instance, you know, we, we owned quality stocks in the U.S., outright and mm -hmm. then actually recently this year we converted that to a long short so we go long quality and we short the market against it the only longs that we have are you know EFA value and em value at this point in the cycle so let's talk a little bit about hedge funds since you mentioned long short after doing pretty well in the 90s and the early 2000s hedge fund performance has been fairly mediocre uh, at least back to the financial crisis and, and certainly since the Recovery. What do you make of that? Is that cyclical? Are we ever going to see mean reversion in hedge fund performance? 
Or has the game changed? It was one thing when there was 200 hedge funds, and now there's 12,000. You'll never see those sort of numbers again across the whole industry. Yeah, I, I think the game has changed. You, you know, I, I remember looking at some data from Morningstar that, you know, there was about 1,000 hedge funds in 2000 or something like that, and it rose to seven or 8,000. I don't know how many there are, are today. It's over 11,000. Is it over 11,000? And about 25% of them disappear each year right. and reform. right. Without the high watermark, right. so it, it, it they kind of reboot, and apparently clients come along with them. Yeah, that's a dirty, dirty little secret of the hedge, hedge fund industry. I won't tell anyone. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I think the game has changed for hedge funds. Although, you know, just like most things, like the 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 the, the pendulum swings too far the other way, where people are kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Right. One of the things that we like about the profile of some hedge fund returns is that you are taking risk, but you're doing it with a shorter duration. So merger arb is kind of the poster child right. for this. So you're trying to capture an equity risk premium. You're doing it, you know, our merger arb portfolio, there's 20 to 30 deals. The average, you know, average duration of the deal is 90 days. If you do get that duration increase that we talked about earlier, you know, merger R may get hit, but it's going to get hit a lot less than, than something else. So we think that diversifying hedge funds, particularly at this point of the cycle, are, are reasonable activities to be thinking about for your portfolio. There's another question as to how much you should pay for them. I think the 2 and 20 model is under significant pressure, right. and certainly the fund-to-fund industry seems to have, have have gone you know the way of the dinosaur the fund of fees some yeah have yeah, that, yeah that 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 becomes harder to justify, and I want to say that one and a half and fifteen seem to be the new two and twenty, but that's just anecdotal. Um, along the along the same lines as hedge funds, uh, perhaps being a little cyclical. What do you make of the value underperformance the past few years, and, and does it remind you of any other periods? Yeah, values underperformance has been brutal, particularly for us who, who tend to tilt more towards value-type strategies. Uh, its magnitude is not as bad as it was in the dot-com bubble, but the duration has been has been longer. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so we think that there's opportunities for certainly for value outside the U.S. that we think is much cheaper than growth. We do think value is cheaper than growth in the U.S. However, we still think quality is more attractive more attractive in the U.S. Um, it's been a long cycle, you know, whether the, 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 the rise of, of interest rates and inflation, you know, value stocks, they have kind of intrinsically a shorter duration, whether they do better in that type of environment. We're not sure, you know, I think that's, that's tough to tell. I think that story makes sense. But we'd rather focus on the valuation, which, which looks attractive, particularly in EM. And then finally, the, the question that, that you guys are, are perfect to ask um, Everybody has been looking at the rise of indexing, be it BlackRock or Vanguard, what have you, and a number of people have ascribed indexing um, as a distorting factor, and it's making price discovery more challenging and perhaps even contributing to this extended valuation issue. What, what are your views on indexing, and do you put any continence in any of this indexing or making things pricier? I think as, as, as the world comes uh, more and more into the, uh, you know, does more and more indexing, uh, the ability to find cheap stocks out there increases. So I think for active management, the more the world indexes, the better it becomes. There's nothing better than a cheap stock that stays cheap because that you get the gift that keeps on giving. You keep right. earn, getting that earnings yield. You keep generating the dividend yield. Um, I, I, you know, uh, uh, Bernstein has some great research on 
the, the you know the asset management industry, but but they I read a report they had at least according to the S and P there's over a million indexes now, which just seems like that's not yeah, that, 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 that like that's lot. not possible. <laughs> um, you know I know Bloomberg ran a story last summer saying that there are more indexes than there are stocks. Well, in a couple the US. of years ago there were more mutual funds than stocks. Now there are more indexes than stocks. I recall I recall seeing that that same thing. So what does it mean? Does it does it is it contributing to the valuation conundrum? Uh, I mean, certainly the, the extent that more people are investing in indexes, that generates momentum, and I think that generates price inefficiencies. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for you know, for us, we're largely quantitative in our equity investing. I think it presents some opportunity. Now, we do need to work harder than we did ten years ago. You know, quant tools, smart beta. You know those things have you know been largely commoditized. Right. So so I think you know our efforts in quantitative. We've done a lot of work over the past several years with our models trying to uncover intrinsic value. We you know we're less about AI and 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 more about trying to discover the intrinsic value. So I think we have to work harder uh, in that realm than we did historically. But I think that there's there's certainly more scope for alpha uh, than there was a couple years ago. Thank you, Matt. This has been absolutely fascinating. We have been speaking with Matt Kadner. He is a member of GMO's asset allocation team and a uh, value investor par excellence. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things asset allocation, valuation, hedge fund, etc. Be sure and check out my daily column. You can find that on BloombergView.com. You could follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matt, so much for doing this. Tell us the most important thing that we don't know about you. Um, I mean, I'm, frankly, I don't know that there's, I don't know if I have anything. I don't know. If we, well, what don't, okay, so let me rephrase yeah. that. Tell us the most important thing that friends and family who know you might not be aware of. Um, I'm probably more competitive than people realize, you know, that there, there's a veneer of, of trying to be calm and cool, but inside <laughs> I, um, you know, I run pretty, pretty hot. You want to win. That's what it's all about. I, I can't say I disagree. Um, tell us about your, your early mentors who helped guide your career. Yeah. I, you know, I, I you know, like you, I kind of put the legal stuff to the, the side because it was such a painful episode of my life. But, you know, when I think about Putnam, you know, I had such valuable uh, business mentors. So, you know, Kevin Sullivan and Alex Nelson, uh, originally Rob Job, you know, in consultant relations, they were, you know, such, they were so formative. John Brown, who ran the institutional group, it was such a good group of, of people that there was a ton of things that we learned from, that I learned from them. And then, you know, more recently, you know, it's really been Jeremy and Ben. You know, mm-hmm. I, I found that the way we approached asset allocation in the world was so different than what I had learned in the CFA or kind of normal institutional investing that that that, that has just such a, such a profound influence on the way I, I think about returns. And, you know, if I would have known about the seven-year forecast in 1999 or mean reversion, I mean, I, th- I, th- I think it could have, would have been very interesting. To, to say the least. 
Um, who else influenced your approach to investing? Um, I mean, there are other kind of the, the traditional value value folks out there. I think Ed Chancellor has also in, influenced. So Ed was a, a former colleague, although uh -huh. he still is engaged with the firm. He's a financial historian, and he has a deep understanding of bubbles. And I think his historical approach is so helpful because there's so much rhetoric as to why it's different this time or elegant explanations uh -huh. as to why it's different. And his, you know, understanding of history cuts across a lot of that in ways that yeah, I just find so much more credible than you know, a sell side, generic sell-side report. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Um, everybody's favorite question, what are some of your favorite books, be they finance, non-finance, fiction, non-fiction? What do you enjoy reading and, and what books would you recommend other people should read. Yeah, on the finance side, you know, Andy Ilmanen, Ilmanen wrote a fantastic book called Expected Returns, which mm -hmm. it's kind of basically a finance textbook, and he goes through all of the asset classes and the risk premiums, and he does a wonderful job of, of laying those out. And I think that's a very good book. Uh, I did read, you know, years ago. Uh, at uh, David Rosenberg's uh, recommendation, uh, a diary of the Great uh, Depression. It's about this lawyer, Benjamin Roth, in Youngstown, Ohio, and it was his diary, you know, contemporaneous diary of, of what the de Depression was like. And it was fascinating in that what he had to do to survive, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of a businessman, you know, bartering. Uh, I was amazed how he was worried about inflation over that time period. And it also struck me how much he looked at stocks, these blue chip stocks and, and how cheap he said they were, but he said he had no money to invest in them huh. and, and how much money he could have made if he did put some capital to work. And I'm struck by today where, you know, the concern for illiquidity is so removed, the you know, private equity, right. direct lending, you know, everybody's trying to lock up their money for 10 years, you know, nine years ago. We saw how important liquidity was, and mm -hmm. today that seems to be a very much a backseat consideration. And I think about Benjamin Roth in that book. Huh? That that's quite fascinating. What what excites you right now? It's a complicated environment. What do you find very interesting or exciting today? Um, I think building a portfolio today is is really hard. That you know in '08. Uh, at least on our numbers, it was pretty clear what to do. You should take as little risk as your career should allow. I think today it's much more difficult. It's much more complicated. And the, the, the other aspect of it is the, the, our business is evolving so rapidly where you know, 20 or 30 years ago, you know, Jeremy and Dick Mayo and Ike Van Otterloo, they, can focus on, they could focus on defined benefit pensions and that's all they needed to worry about. Right. I mean, obviously today, you, know, you can't do that. You know, defined contribution, we know that there are issues there. The RIA space, high net worth, family office, how taxes impact that. Sure. I think that trying to solve the problems for clients is, is much more layered and intricate than it was you know, even 10 years ago. Quite, quite interesting. Um, what are you looking forward to as upcoming changes in the asset management business? What do you think is going to either shift or surprise us going forward? So being part of a team that's done asset allocation for coming on 30 years, one of the things that I'm impressed by are the number of people who believe that they can do asset allocation today. Uh -huh. And I wonder how many of those people 
were around in 07 and 08, right. how many people were around in 1999 and 2000. Towards you get to the, when you get towards the end of the cycle, everybody seems to be able to do this asset allocation thing quite easily. Right. And so, you know, I am looking forward to the turn of the cycle and that uh, kind of the shaking of the industry where uh, where people, you know, people with skill will be differentiated from people who, who really don't have skill. I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying to remember the book. It might have been Adam Smith's Money Game where he's talking to a manager who's in his 40s and he hires these young 20-somethings to run the portfolios because he said, I couldn't touch any of this stuff. It's all terrible junk, but they're making money of it and this, uh, from it which is great for the firm, and as soon as the cycle turns, we'll, we'll get rid of all these guys. <laughs> I, it, I don't remember if it was, if it was money, uh, money Game or um, it might have been Market Wizards, but it stood out as, yeah, I can't touch any of that. But they don't, they've never lived through the cycle, so they don't know. It will be very interesting to see what happens when things go through the next substantial downturn. And because they're always very different. Mm -hmm. And so, so, you know, the cause for this one's going to be different. How we come through is going to be different. What's going to be cheap is going to be different. Um, and, and I think it's just, you know, as you talk to clients, you talk to folks out there, you know, I think there's more a sense of like, oh, we do the asset allocation. You know, we'll listen to what you guys have to say, but, but, but we've got this. Thank you. <laughs> right. It, it's always amazing whenever I see um, anybody writing something along the lines of everybody who's working on a trading desk today um, who started since fill-in-the-blank, has not seen a rising rate environment, has not seen inflation, has not seen... So if any of these things come back, everybody, half of or more of the, the deaths out there are going to be experiencing things for the first time. That, that'll be very interesting. Yeah, and there's always new lessons to be learned, and I'm sure some of the people will nav navigate it, it, it you know, just fine, but um, it does feel like it is late cycle in terms of the number of people who claim that they can do it well. T tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Yeah, you know, when I, uh, when I was a lawyer, I was, I was desperately trying to get out, and at first in private practice and then, you know, at LPL. And I, I can't tell you how many times I got to, like, the final round or the final person and I just didn't get the job. And it was so frustrating and disheartening because I knew I wasn't doing what I enjoyed or what I wanted to do with, mm -hmm. with my life. And so, uh, you know, it was just that perseverance of like, listen, you know, there's, there's got to be a better way to do this. And so kind of keeping to push and, and to kind of deal with that failure, but, but keep, you know, adapting and evolving to get to a point where, you know, I was excited about coming to work every day. And I think that process was a long and difficult one and much more difficult than I would have hoped. But I think it also gave me a greater appreciation for how incredible it is to be excited on a Monday morning to come into work. That, that's, that's quite a um, uh, happy answer. That, that's a fulfilling answer. Um, tell us what you do for fun outside of the office. What what gets you excited? Yeah, I mean, obviously the family, you know, we have three kids, 13-year-old uh, boy-girl twins, and then um, a nine-year-old daughter, wonderful wife, wonderful family. That's a lot of fun. So we're going skiing in Vermont this weekend. Mm -hmm. Got, you know, lots of snow here in Boston, uh, up in the mountains. So skiing in the winter and then golf, golf in the summer. What sort of advice would you give to a millennial or a recent college graduate who is interested in a career in either finance or asset allocation? Uh, it, it's, it's reading. 
you know, it's reading and Buffett's compounding knowledge through time and, and you just need to be a voracious reader. I would also say that certainly, you know, when I was in college, my understanding of, you know, being a portfolio manager is, is, is quite glamorous. I mean, it is a humbling, soul-crushing, it is a, in many, in many times when you're not doing well, it is a miserable existence. Mm-hmm. And so you really need to love it in order to kind of persevere and stay in the game. And if you don't really love it, I would encourage you to find something that you really did because it, I think it's impossible to be successful, certainly in this industry, unless you, you really love it and you can give it 110. It, it, it can be that painful over, over certain periods of the cycle. Oh, you just, you just, it's hard to get out of bed. That, 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 those are the times where it's actually hard to get out of bed. Thank you, Matt. This has been absolutely fascinating. We have been speaking with Matt Kadner, of GMO. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, where you can see any of the other 200 such conversations we've had. Uh, We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the staff who helps put together this weekly show. Uh, Michael Batnick is my head of research. Taylor Riggs is our booker slash producer. Medina Parwana is our audio engineer slash producer par excellence. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.